you sound great actually oh good um you sound really really good very full full tones we should do some what is it amsr asmr asmr ontario loud asmr ASMR. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know who the target market is for this but uh i don't think it's large Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. As always, I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Alvin Tejo. We have got an amazing pod for you today. Uh, Dr. Sherry Pasternak of Ryerson's Yellowhead Institute uh, is on to talk about the history of land theft uh, from Canada's Indigenous people, how it has worked, how Indigenous people have and are fighting back today, and how this has uh, particularly manifested in some of the high-profile disputes we've seen this year with the Mi'kmaq fisheries in Nova Scotia, with the Wet'suwet'en blockades in BC. I learned just a ton in this conversation, so I would definitely stick around later in the pod uh, for that. But first, we have quite a week of news to get through that I'm hoping forever ends the narrative of Doug Ford and the Ford government somehow being reformed in some way, uh, because in one week, the Ford government has introduced measures that A, made it harder for COVID-related civil suits to proceed against long-term care and nursing homes, B, removed the authority for municipalities to conduct elections with ranked choice ballots, and C, granted university status to Canada's Christian College, an institution run by a man that has described Islam as a hostile takeover, same-sex marriage as a dagger in the heart of man, and sex ed as a militant homosexual agenda. Uh, great stuff from the Ford government this week. I'm thinking back to a column that I saw in McLean's this summer with the big, bold headline, what happened to the old Doug Ford? And I don't know. I think we found him. There was some great, uh, great uh, heckling going on in the legislature in Ontario this week as well with people saying that uh, Dean French is back, everybody. He's back (laughs) with a vengeance. Going to right all the wrongs, especially the Christian colleges and screw those municipalities thinking they can do democracy as well as uh, as our party can do democracy, which does rank ballots. And for some reason, people fucking forgot. And, you know, let's not have anybody take any sort of responsibility uh, in terms of what they uh, were able to provide or not provide in long term care nursing homes. And let's protect those uh, private sector investors who run, you know, top of the line uh healthcare centers that actually killed way more people than the private sector did. So, you know, screw you, but I guess this is where we are. The- Alvin, Alvin just Alvin just encapsulated the entire episode we're about to do, didn't he? In like four sentences. So <laughs> we can all just go home. Yeah, we're um uh that's it for Ontario Loud. So uh, let's maybe start off with the uh, first piece of legislation, which was about uh, civil suits for long-term care providers. So the government released uh, two absolutely strange pieces of legislation last week. The first was Bill 218, the Supporting Ontario's Recovery and Municipal Elections Act, uh, which changed the legal standards for COVID-related lawsuits. This has prompted a really negative reaction of, from uh, some families of seniors who died of COVID in nursing homes. Uh, and so, Alexi, I'm curious if you can walk us through the long-term care aspects of the bill and why there is such outrage about it. Yeah, for sure. So I'll just speak to the first half of that bill. As you mentioned, the the back half is about municipal elections, and we'll come back to that later in the pod. Um, the current state, and I apologize uh, not being a lawyer for the lawyers out there who I know are listening, um, that this may not be at all um, perfectly um, 
uh, technical language, but basically right now you can sue other people for damages due to any kind of negligent action or inaction uh, that results in somebody getting sick or dying from COVID. Uh, the change that the government wants to make is basically raise the bar a little bit. So it would changes the, the basic uh, idea so that you can um, no longer sue anyone for, uh, as the act says, an act or a mission that led to you getting COVID if at the relevant time the person acted or made a good faith effort to act in accordance with public health guidelines and laws. So this is, first of all, retroactive. You aren't getting your money back if you've already spent thousands of dollars uh, in legal proceedings against a uh, a long-term care center or really any anyone who gave you COVID. Uh, and the key term here is the good faith effort part. And that's defined in the legislation as, quote, honest effort, whether or not that effort is reasonable, end quote. And uh, that's actually also come under uh, attack from uh, some of the, the lawyers commenting in the media about this because uh, it's very unclear what what that extra what those extra words actually add to good faith effort. Adding the words honest effort doesn't seem to um, clarify it all that much for a lot of people. Totally. And so I have my own theories, but uh, what do you think? Why do we think the government introduced this law in the first place at this point? Uh, Attorney General Doug Downey was asked about this. Uh, and in defending the legislation, he said that the purpose is to provide liability protection for a whole bunch of different people. So not, not specifically long-term care homes, although obviously this captures long-term care homes, but people like um, businesses, charities, nonprofits. Um, theoretically, one person could su sue another person, like a frontline worker or a volunteer somewhere for giving them COVID if they got sick and died. Um, uh, or just got sick and there were damages. So basically, it's just there's a whole lot of possible liability floating out there in Ontario as a result of COVID for anyone who is negligent. And so we're just going to sort of raise the bar a little bit to prevent, you know, neighbors from suing neighbors. That's kind of the, the, the general pitch they're making. But we all know, you know, who's actually lobbying hardest for this, right? And it's the long-term care homes. It's probably also the uh, insurance companies that would be paying out in a lot of cases if these are big lawsuits. Uh, and you know the star has even reported that a lot of long-term care homes are having trouble getting liability insurance these days because of because of COVID. Yeah. So, um, the attorney general also said that this doesn't let the bad actors off the hook because there is an exception in the act which says that uh, if the plaintiff can prove gross negligence, then they can continue with their lawsuit. But uh, gross negligence is a much higher bar. Courts are very hesitant to uh, accept gross negligence uh, as a um, as an argument. Um, the term itself isn't even clearly defined. Uh, it's more than carelessness, closer to sort of extreme disregard with foreseeable harm. But even then, like there's the, the courts are, are back and forth on this. The, um, the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2010 had a decision uh, where they reviewed the jurisprudence on this and they basically said it's more than breaching a duty of care. And to a great extent, the determination of gross negligence depends on the facts of each case. It depends on the application of a less than precise definition of gross negligence interpreted through the prism of common sense. So yeah, I mean, how many families are going to go to a lawyer? They're going to say, my loved one died. These people took no action to prevent this or, you know, they were completely negligent in taking care of my loved one. And the lawyer's going to say, yeah, I mean, normally I would take this case, but gross negligence is really hard to prove. And where you're going to be out thousands of dollars in two or three years from now, who knows if you're going to be successful. And this is definitely going to put a huge chill on people seeking restitution for wrongs done largely by uh, these uh, private care homes. I, I mean, I guess the question comes back to who was asking for this, right? It, it's not like my wife's a frontline worker. They haven't been talking about this. Hospitals and, and, and doctors who routinely get malpractice suits aren't concerned that 
you know, they, they haven't fulfilled their duty of care to prevent people from getting COVID. They're doing as much as they possibly can with the support and resources they've been given by hospitals and the government. Um, so the people who are really asking for this are the for-profit long-term care homes because they understand that they did not provide you know, the basic necessities for this, uh, this disease to not transfer around at a much more rapid rate um, than, than other institutions were able to do. So they're trying to cover their own ass. And I don't think it's coincidental that obviously a lot of uh, former conservative premiers uh, or, uh, or staffers <laughs> happen to be chairs and uh, people on the boards of a number of these for-profit centers. Anyone in particular you're referencing there, Alvin? I don't know. There, there may be one that's that's there somewhere. I can't remember what his name was. But uh, <laughs> Every single time I pay a fee on the 407, though. Yes. Never forget that that 99-year uh, sweetheart deal that they gave away there. But anyway, like clearly they're just trying to, uh, to save their tails a little bit here. And linking back to our conversation last week when we were talking about the NDP's proposal to uh, to, to create or to eventually transition to uh, only a public system for long-term care homes. I think uh, some of these for-profit centers sort of see not necessarily the writing on the wall, but they see uh, their business being um, severely put at risk. I think part a lot of that's their own fault for not you know not doing their best. A lot of it is they've been able to work through the loopholes of not needing to upgrade their facilities because they were grandfathered in for decades for having older centers, and a lot of that was also the cause of uh, increased numbers at for-profit centers. And they're trying to use the current friendly government to them to to cover their own ass. That's that's clearly what this is. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I think like it's interesting because Doug Ford did promise, uh, and he's been very strong in his language about this, about you know not stopping until the families get justice. He has expressed a lot of outrage when it comes to long-term care, and it strikes me that when you see something like this, what that actually means is that the government would rather have a long-term care strategy that it controls the pieces on rather than leave an externality in the courts, which I can kind of get a little bit, not from a, this is right perspective, but you know, I think that's how any government might prefer to think about, okay, if, if you know you need to do a bunch of investment in long-term care, rather than have a bunch of lawsuits tell you what the policy should be, they it seems to be that they're kind of trying to mitigate the risk to the sector on the legal side and then maybe on the others on another side come in with some investments for a strategy that's the most charitable reading my actual theory is that alvin you are right and that you know this is a government that has proven time and time again to be extremely friendly to the needs of business and they this is a very business friendly bit if you are a business friendly piece of legislation this was the first thing that the republicans in the states wanted put in the covid response bill which i think is an interesting a very similar measure yeah that's never that's never a good sign you don't want to follow the republicans lead on healthcare uh for anything i think but one of the other things i think that we need to realize that doug is able to do now is that he understands that he can say things and people believe him right we need to be able to read through the lines and understand that just because he now knows what to say doesn't mean he actually knows what to do and he knows he can say one thing and do something completely different and a lot of people will believe him. So, you know, we need yeah. to call him on his bullshit for what it actually is here. And the government, you know, being afraid that they'll have to make up for the 
private sector of the system if they you know have to do all these payouts and they're not willing to invest in the in the public side of the system i'm not convinced that yeah i mean maybe this is probably too charitable to doug ford but he has a history of saying these things because he honestly doesn't realize what his government is doing under his own watch. And this feels very much like one of those situations to me. I mean, maybe he's just lying through his teeth, but I actually think he just doesn't know what this bill actually means. I I think he just honestly thinks that his government's going to get these people justice and that he just, as long as he keeps saying that, maybe one of his staff will give them justice somehow. Um, but he's not actually taking the leadership to understand what his like own attorney general is doing in the in the meantime. It's just, it's very strange. I want to move us on because this actually relates quite heavily to the second part of the same bill, which has nothing to do with anything we've just been talking about at all, but instead just removes the provisions of the Municipal Elections Act that allows for municipal governments to adopt ranked choice ballots. Um, This is something that municipalities can currently do. Many municipalities do. There's not really a ton of policy to understand here. It just basically removes the option from municipalities. So uh, I'm curious, um, you know, just let's, Alvin, if we can just dive into how did we get ranked ballot in Ontario and why we think the Ford government did this? Yeah. So just to your point there, Chris, it is so brief that they can say the entire thing in one line. Ontario Regulation 310-16, ranked ballot elections made under the Act, is revoked. That's all they're doing. They're deleting a line and you know everything that's associated with that one line from the existing, uh, the existing bill, uh, which is the Municipal Elections Act from 1996, which the, uh, on the last Liberal government in Ontario amended to allow municipalities in the lead up to the 2018 election. Uh, if they so choose, if those municipalities or those councils chose um, to adopt ranked ballots, they were allowed to. Now, interestingly, because you they were given the choice, you're asking you were we were asking as a as a former liberal government existing councils to vote on whether or not they wanted to change their own electoral systems. And when you're asking politicians if they want to change how they get elected, most of them tend not to change it because that's how they got elected. Uh, 444 municipalities in Ontario, one of them, uh, which is the city of London, uh, chose to go with a ranked ballot for the 2018 municipal election. Two of them uh, ran referendums, both of which passed with a majority vote, with Kingston having over 63% uh, voting in favor to adopt a referendum for the subsequent election in 2022. Cambridge was the other municipality that also voted in favor of ranked ballots for the next election. That whole, though, all those options have now been removed for those municipalities. They, the government cited, the current government cited that it was due to extra costs. But in asking any of these municipalities that have gone through or were looking through the system, it was nominal. It was maybe a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. To, you know, they have to print ballots anyway. They have to count ballots anyway. And if you don't understand how to rank ballot works, you're essentially ranking your choices one two, three, you're using, you know, basic numbers. And it means, generally speaking, uh, a lot of people think that it means more consensus among candidates, um, less, uh, less division, potentially more cooperation, more understanding of what other candidates are trying to propose and a willingness to work together. It also feels more democratic in a lot of ways. It is also the way that all four provincial parties in Ontario currently elect their leaders. Everybody goes through this. All the party members go through it. If it was good enough for Doug to have won and beaten Christine Elliott, it should be good enough for everybody else. 
And what I find fascinating about this is that even in London, when they did pass this uh, and they did use it in the 2018 election, it didn't actually have uh, an effect on the result because everybody who was in first place after the first round of ranked ballots ended up winning a majority of the votes after the the, the rankings came through. Um, but now they had a, a, a larger mandate because they knew that other people who supported other candidates also supported their candidacy at the end of the day. And I think that's good for everybody. So I guess the question is, I mean, like, does he, does Doug just like fucking around with elections? And he just wants to keep messing things up for municipal councillors. And at this point, is there anything cities and, and towns can do? I mean, I have two. One, the most important thing is that, you know, there is a petition led by uh, the London deputy mayor, Jesse Helmer, a uh, friend of the pod, former guest, who uh, I would put your name on. I would sign. There's a ton. Uh, he, he's sending out a ton of great stuff right now about calling. And so there's a ton of advocacy that you can do about this and that I would encourage listeners to do. I mean, maybe this is too cynical, Reed, but I don't really think I have any other more complex thoughts on this other than that conservatives generally dislike ranked choice ballots because first past the post tends to benefit conservative parties conservative and you know i have never seen great evidence that party affiliation really reflects onto municipal voting behaviors where the political parties typically aren't represented but if you were to put a ranked ballot choice onto a federal or provincial election you would get liberal and ndp governments almost every time. So do you think, Alexi, do you think that this would mean or that they're looking at this as a let's nip this in the bud before people get used to or comfortable ranked to ranked ballots in the future and we'll ask for this on a provincial level or a federal level? Yeah, I do. I to, I think Chris is right on with his thought. This is a threat, a long-term threat to people who are on the right or the left. Um, and it, it tends to create centrist outcomes uh, for good or for bad because people who are on the left or the right will rank choices uh, starting from the wing that they're on going toward the center uh, and that will just end up with a lot more centrist uh, winners. Uh, and so I understand why there are people on both sides of the spectrum who disagree with this method of choice. It's not to me, it's not necessarily the best uh, choice. Like I wouldn't like to see us adopt ranked ballots for um, provincial or federal elections. I think there are better proportional systems out there. Um, but I, I think that's all that this is. There, this is a long-term existential issue for them. Uh, they think it would uh, disadvantage them in electoral politics. They don't want it to catch on at the municipal level because who knows what that'll mean. And I'm sure that they were hearing from uh, from some of their supporters all across the province who are in municipal politics who are saying, we're hearing uh, from our constituents that they want us to do this. We don't want to do this. Can you guys get rid of this problem for us? I'm, I'm sure that was part of it. And they felt quite safe in um, burying this in a bill that very few people will talk about. Um, and not a lot of people even know that this was an option. Uh, and now's the time if you're going to kill it to kill it. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's very from a very sort of crass political perspective, they're going to get away with this. And, um, uh, you know, it's bad for democracy, but it's good for for conservatives um, long term. It is interesting, though, because if I'm looking at the results of Toronto election that Doug Ford lost to John Tory in, you know, I don't think there's a necessarily like a clear split um, as to how these votes would have gone. I think maybe John Tory might have won in a landslide because maybe he's the second choice of all the Olivia Chow votes. But, you know, there are a ton of people down the ballot who many of whom are quite right wing uh, 
embarrassingly right wing for the city who you know Doug Ford could have benefited from so I don't know it's 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 a weird thing but it is very clear to me that we're back to a very nakedly political form of governing from this government. Um, all all pretenses of COVID good naturedness, uh, I think we should uh, now take with a large grain of salt. So the last thing I'll say on this, and we should move on to the next topic, is that um, we should ask the premier to reverse the uh, results from the last leadership election and return it to first past the post, in which Christine Elliott would have won by over three thousand votes as uh, the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. My premier, Christine Elliott. Um, (laughs) uh, Okay, so I'll take us to our last topic today, speaking of nakedly political moves, uh, because it is another bill introduced last week, Bill 213, the Better for People, Smarter for Business Act, which did a lot of things, not all of which we have time to talk about today, but most famously amends the Canada Christian College and School of Graduate Studies Act to give this private Christian college a university designation. It also grants it the authority to uh, issue Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science degrees. It actually does the same thing for two other Christian colleges, Redeemer and Tyndale College. Um, however, these institutions already actually already had this because the minister can, on the minister's authority, the minister of colleges and universities can grant this by themselves. So I'll try and walk through what this means. Uh, So at a high level in Ontario, consent of the government is required to grant degrees, provide programs that lead to degrees or represent yourself at a university. Um, This system of tight control is why we only have 20 universities in Ontario and why private for-profit institutions like, say, Trump University aren't allowed here. Um, A good example of how this works is DeVry, who we might know from their uh, uh, infomercials when we were younger. When it was operating in Ontario, it had to be called DeVry Institute of Technology, but in the state, it is DeVry University. So the existing Canada Christian College is actually, has existed for a long time. Uh, it was adopted by the legislature in 1999 under the Harris government. Um, and so the government does recognize it. Students who go are able to collect OSAP. The institution, however, is not publicly funded. And actually the same is true for the other true Christian colleges. So this particular bill and elevating Christian Canada's Christian college, I think is strange for a couple reasons. A, it continues a trend of elevating private Christian colleges to universities. Before the Doug Ford, before the Ford government, either through the minister's office or through the legislature, we had these private Christian colleges that were created through acts of the legislature, but they were not called universities. Um, and regular universities in Ontario are very different from these institutions. They receive public operating grants. They have controlled by cameral governance structures, they have controlled tuition fees, they have academic freedom principles. Um, Canada's Christian College has similar things in name, but in how they actually work, I don't believe anyone thinks that Canada's Christian College operates like a real university. Um, In fact, in the Student Code of Non-Academic Conduct, it says that students need to apply by biblical standards, um, which is very different than, you know, when I went to school at McMaster. Um, Second, the legislation came in advance of the ministry's quality assurance process. So the ministry maintains an arm's length agency that reviews applications related to university and college status. The college has an organizational review and a nomenclature amendment coming through that process, after which point the minister, like he did for the other two private Christian colleges, could have made a call about 
these things. But this legislation kind of fast tracks that, gets ahead of the process that is still underway. Yeah, basically gives the college the win that it's looking for without going through PCAB, uh, which is the, the arm's length board. The last thing uh, that I'll say about this, the last reason it is strange is if we can't talk about this and not talk about Charles McVetty, the president of Canada's Christian College, who uh, has said some outrageous things about a same-sex marriage, anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric, homophobic comments. You know, he said that when the win sex ed curriculum preys on children, and he has been a very active supporter of Doug Ford, uh, particularly after Doug Ford uh, promised to repeal sex ed. So there's a ton of stuff there. Um, critically, McVetty's endorsement of Doug Ford and then Doug Ford rolling back the sex ed curriculum. So when I look at this, I read that this looks a lot like a consolation prize for potentially pissed off uh, social conservatives and a powerful Christian supporter. Um, but that's kind of the process. That's how it worked. And curious what you guys think. Do you think this is the first step in a Ford university, like uh, like Trump university? Uh, uh, I don't think he's I mean, learning a Christian university anytime soon. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. maybe. You never know. I mean, oh, if God. he keeps granting uh you know his friends universities it's just hey name one of them after me please um i mean this is just so much garbage like <laughs> i i think everybody knows what i feel about you know government support of religious uh religious educational institutions and um i think the less we're in that business the better off uh we're all going to be um i think uh, certainly they are allowed to do what they want to do on their own, but I think it's problematic when the provincial government is, you know, giving them that certificate of approval, that stamp of approval that other people will, you know, I don't think they're going to get duped into going there, but it sort of puts them uh, certainly on a, on a higher plane than they deserve to be. Uh, and I don't think that's fair for the other colleges and universities around Ontario who uh, offer a very different uh, level of education that I will say is certainly, I think, of a higher quality and, and more and will be more recognized um, around the world for the reason that it is not something that is just handed out like a Trump university, right? That our divide, our divides and our Everest, you know, that nomenclature means something uh, in Ontario. And the fact that they're just going around PCAB, the uh, Post-Secondary Education Quality Assessment Board, um, shows you that this is 100% a political decision. And it's all bullshit because <laughs> this guy, you know, like the, these are people who are some of the most right wing and socially conservative people in the province that we are going to continue rewarding because they supported the political aspirations of our current premier. And that's that's unconscionable to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is to me, this is all about shoring up support from a certain group of conservative supporters. And this is a easy way to show that their concerns are being listened to, that the government has their back without um, doing too much to upset the apple cart for the rest of Ontarians. The thing is that I will say, I'm not defending this decision. I think it's a, a bad decision, but the course has kind of already left the barn on this. I mean, Ontario has a couple of these private uh, universities, the Christian universities already, as mentioned, for example, Redeemer, uh, who, by the way, has, I think, a great slogan. I think it's um, a degree you can believe in. I mean, come on, you got to give them credit just for that. But, Absolutely. Uh, but you know, we've had these for a long time, uh, you know, decades, if not longer. The, you know, the sky hasn't fallen. Uh, it doesn't really, uh, no one really thinks of these as equivalent to the, the publicly funded universities in Ontario. A lot of people don't even know we have 
institutions that are allowed to call themselves universities that are actually just Christian um, colleges. And they do give out, you know, BAs and, and, and science degrees and stuff like that. But they're quite small. Uh, most of them, we're talking, you know, a few hundred students, maybe just over a thousand students at the largest. So, uh, you know, this is already a thing um, that what makes this one particularly bad, obviously, McFetty is a, a terrible, um, has made terrible comments that uh, should be condemned. And it's strange to be rewarding that kind of leadership with uh, giving them a university, for sure. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we already have Christian universities. I'm not at all surprised to see that those numbers would expand over time as Ontario grows, uh, as conservative governments look for ways to ingratiate themselves with certain parts of their base. Um, this is, this is pretty, you know, pretty expected to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the success of this lobby is one of the under appreciated parts of this story because all three of these Christian universities are created through acts of the legislature that all happened under conservative governments of the past. And this seems to me to be kind of a, a next step in that, where I think the Ford government really opened itself up to um, a potential risk here, though, is the process foul and in com combination with McBetty's controversy. The fact that there was a process through PCAB that was working its way through and then this led act of the legislature kind of preempted it seems to me to be a whether intentional or not creates the illusion that or creates the like what was different about this application uh that wouldn't have made it through pcap's process i'm not saying there's fire there but there's certainly smoke and particularly when you look at the history of this particular institution in 1982 their right to grant degrees was revoked and then reinstated later on but basically put into the narrow category of religious education and this expands it out to other like bachelor of arts and bachelor of science which is a policy change for this institution so uh, i'm kind of wondering what was it about this institution's application that you know the for government felt it needed to pre-legislate because the minister could just say yes to this um providing it just goes through that pcap process and i tried looking at its application and it's not posted right now there's a 404 error um, on the PCAB site for these two things only. I, I think there is something very frustrating about this piece that I just, you know. Um... Bre breaking news on Twitter while you were talking about this uh, response from PCAB this morning. There was a problem with the web compliance of the file that the Canada Christian College sent to us. We're trying to get it uh, in the works and have it up uh, very shortly. So hopefully uh, by the time this airs, uh, people will be able to look it up for themselves. Hey, it's me. This is the part in the middle of the podcast where I tell you to do a couple things. First one of those things, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca. Hit that Patreon link, support our podcast. It really helps. If you don't want to support on Patreon or you can't for some reason, totally cool. Go to iTunes or wherever your podcast store is and leave us a review. It is one of the most helpful things you can do to on for Ontario Loud. It gets, you know, the one or two bad reviews we've ever received down to the bottom. Love that. That's all the housekeeping for today. On to our interview about land theft with Dr. Sherry Pasternak. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. So uh, I want to ask you, and I'm really asking to listen to the next, this next part of the podcast because it's an important one. 
Um, because today we're going to be talking about land theft from Canada's Indigenous people, colonization, and how it impacts Canadian society today. You will probably have seen headlines about land theft in the last year, except they haven't used that phrase. Uh, the recent domestic terrorism by white non-Indigenous Canadians toward the fisheries of the Mi'kmaq in St. Mary's Bay, Nova Scotia, the attempted removal of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs from their territories to build the coastal gas link pipeline in B.C., these are just two events this year that have captured public imagination, adding to a list of many more that had their roots in actual centuries of land theft and colonization by Canadian settlers and the colonial state, and also a struggle by Indigenous people in Canada to reclaim it. So today I want to take us beyond those headlines a bit and help you understand some of the underlying issues behind these conflicts, the history, the structures that have led to them, and how theft of Indigenous territories impacts today. And to help us with this discussion, I'm absolutely honored to welcome Dr. Sherry Pasternak to the pod. Uh, Dr. Pasternak is an assistant professor of criminology at Ryerson University. She is the research director at Ryerson's Yellowhead Institute, the author of multiple books on Indigenous sovereignty, and is currently studying the risk to Indigenous rights in the natural resource extraction economy. Dr. Pasternak, welcome to Ontario Loud. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. I want to talk a little bit about this really excellent paper the Yellowhead Institute put out called Land Back. You called it a red paper, and there's a little bit of an interesting history to that name. So I'm wondering if uh, you can tell us a little bit about what a red paper is and, and what it means. Absolutely. I guess I should start by saying we are intending to put out a red paper every year. So it really is the sort of marquee research that we produce as an institute. And we called it the Red Paper in order to call back to a really important period of Canadian history, which is when the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government put out a policy paper that was later dubbed the White Paper. Um, it was actually put out by the Ministry of Indian Affairs, where Jean Chrétien was the minister at that time. And the paper um, recommended that all special rights for Indigenous people were would be phased out over time. So, I mean, at the best, <laughs> the best uh, interpretation could be that it was misguided in the sense of really promoting an idea of equality for all Canadians and in that vision sort of leveling the field by introducing Indigenous people into the Canadian into Canadian society and citizenry as equal citizens with no special rights, but really at the worst and probably most accurate interpretation, it was really a genocidal policy recommendation proposal. And because it essentially um, did the opposite of what Indigenous people had been demanding since uh, settlers first started taking their lands, which was that it failed to recognize the very real um, inherent claims and uh, ownership and jurisdiction over their lands, uh, waters, territories, and uh, communities. And so in response, there were a number of policy papers that were tabled. One of them, the most famous, was by Harold Cardinal and the Indian Association of Alberta, which was called Citizens Plus, but was dubbed the Red Paper. And there were a number of these papers in response, including uh, BC, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs put out a brown paper. So it's the red mm -hmm. paper we're talking about, but it's generally this defensive and visionary way of responding to these encroachments of uh, settler governments on Indigenous self-determination. I think that history is really important uh, to understand today where we have another Trudeau um, in the Prime Minister's uh, office who is also 
you know, uh, wants to have a stake in, in creating a policy that affects indigenous people. So um, I, I thought it was a really uh, interesting history and, and callback. And it's a great concept to introduce you to some of the ideas in the paper. And there are a couple of big paper ideas in this paper that I think are really important to understand and that certainly blew me away uh, when I read. The first was about sort of how foundationally racist the concept of crown land is. So I'm wondering if we, maybe we can start there, talk a little bit about how crown land came to be and how fundamentally it has been used, as you said a little bit earlier, to encroach on uh, Indigenous claims, uh, erase Indigenous law, governance structures, and sovereignty in this country. Yes. Yeah, so the red paper starts off with... Um... The, the red paper on land back is organized into three sections. And the first section is called denial. And it basically looks at what are the fundamental underlying structures of colonization in this country. And we begin by focusing on crown land. As you say, it sort of does blow more people away than just yourself when they stop to really reflect on what the meaning of crown land is. Since so much in this country we sort of like through the air we breathe, we absorb this uh, colonial reality without really stopping to examine it. And so when people learn that crown land is the status of about 92% or for the whole country, I think it's 80, maybe 86% of the whole country is crown land, but there are provinces like um, in Ontario where 87% of the land is considered crown land. And this distribution is between federal and provincial crown lands, and that distribution changes from province to territory and so on. But we're looking at extremely high numbers from 85 to 96% of um, the territory in the country from region to region is categorized as crown land. And so what does that actually mean? Well, it means that, first of all, it's based in a legal system of tenure or title that was patriated from Britain, but has no inherent meaning or history here except through colonization. So Mm -hmm. it's a fundamentally um, colonial form of land organization, and it's based on a different society and the hierarchies of a different society, which were based on Um, feudal ownership and the way that estate lands were organized and authorized in England. And that is the system of land that we have here, where the crown is considered to be the underlying title holder uh, of all land in the country. And so that's even true for fee simple estates in terms of the registration system who holds the ultimate title. And Mm -hmm. so that that system of land organization of property um, ownership is uh, made possible by the denial of indigenous jurisdiction and law and tenure and territorial authority, um, which colonists themselves didn't deny when they came here. They had very limited access to travel throughout the territory without the permission of indigenous nations. Um, And uh, that denial of indigenous jurisdiction happened very gradually through incredible violence and through the legal authority of essentially the the doctrines of discovery. So that is the foundation of this country. And it's a massive, massive, massive land base, if you think about it. Absolutely. And one of the, I think the thing about it that really blew me away is that, you know, in my lifetime, um, I was born in 1988. And so, you know, when I see these uh, headlines about uh, treaty disputes, um, or I guess the foundation of those is that 
as I understand it, treaties exist as a result of Canadian law, but the law that underlies the even the foundation that these these disputes happen upon is built on a, an erasure and an assumption that Canadian law and the crown is foundational to everything. Um, when that was, I think, certainly not the case pre settlers arriving. And I think that that is just the struggles that are happening today are, are built on a foundation of erasure. And that just really hit me when I, when I, when I read it. And so I, I want to maybe zoom forward a little bit. And it seems like 1982 was an important year in the history of land theft story um, because it included indigenous treaty rights as constitutional. Um, so still within that framework of Canadian law that is built on an assumption that the crown is foundational, but the treaties that were negotiated uh, were provided a legal standing within Canadian law, um, and Indigenous communities have used Section 35 of the Constitution to secure a right to consultation. But as I understand it, Canada currently has no obligation to secure Indigenous consent for Canadian use of treaty territories, and in fact, fights to this day remain to this day to maintain a right. So my question here is broadly, you know, in the modern context, what rights do Indigenous people have to defend treaties under the law? And what do governments and corporate interests employ as tools to circumvent these rights? Oh, that's such a big question. I wonder if we can pick up from where you left off when you were summarizing sort of the implications of the denial of Indigenous jurisdiction. Certainly. So I guess, um, you know, Indigenous people talk about, and this is sort of an internationally um, recognized term, which they talk about Canada as a successor state. So a country that became a dominion as a result of a transfer of power from Britain um, to a settler colony. And in that process, the organization of power happened through um, the British North America Act. And so in the British North America Act, you have a division of jurisdiction between the federal and provincial governments. And there is no there is no role for Indigenous people in the entire constitution of the new country, um, regardless of the fact that Indigenous people were fundamentally, first of all, obviously here first and organized into their own forms of territorial authority and governance, also, something that Canadians don't understand about the history here, had fundamental uh, alliances, treaties, relationships, um, trade networks, um, in intermarriage that created the, the post-contact Indigenous group of the Métis, for example. There's a very, very rich and dense history of um, coexistence between Indigenous people and settlers that has virtually been erased. I think a lot of Canadians do think there's a history of conquest here, and there isn't a history of conquest here. Um, the treaties that you're talking about, both pre-Confederation that were made with Britain and post-Confederation that were made with Canada, were nation-to-nation -nation agreements that were meant to be renewed and that had an interpretation of the spirit of coexistence rather than a surrender uh, clause, which is how they've been interpreted by the state. So in 1867, when Canada becomes a dominion, Indigenous people are not only cut out completely, it's a non-event for them, but with that, there's a swift 
denial of that entire history as well prior to um, confederation where indigenous peoples played a critical role. Um, and so flash, flash forward now to 1982 where Pierre Elliott Trudeau in a sort of um, nationalist posture wants to patriot the constitution indigenous people go to England and say, don't you dare give this country more power when they cannot even recognize the pre-existing nation-to-nation relationships that we made with you and that they then um, took over when uh, at, the, at the point of confederation. And so, but there were internal debates within indigenous communities. Some people felt like we don't want to legitimize this process by uh, playing a role within the constitution. This will domesticate our international agreements, but ultimately through a great effort of organization, including the Constitution Express, in 1982, section 35 was patriated into the constitution, which as you say, recognized and affirmed Aboriginal and tree rights in Canada. And so so then your question is, what kind of consent then, what kind of room did this uh, Section 35 make in terms of giving Indigenous people, or not giving them, but recognizing their uh, role in governing their own lands um, and having consent to federal and provincial authorization of development and extraction on their lands? It's a really good question and a really hard one because the decision should have been a political one. It should have happened in the constitution talks that followed, um, where politically all the leaders of indigenous nations and the leaders of the, uh, you know, the first ministers and the prime minister should have decided what does this new thing mean? (laughs) That didn't happen because the constitution talks ended in failure. So the Supreme Court of Canada had to pick up this very important role of defining what these constitutional rights would look like. Indigenous people didn't negotiate them. Yeah. <sighs> Absolutely. And I think that that's such an important thing for people to understand. And thank you for drawing uh, our attention to the lead up to the creation of the constitution, because section 35 recognized the validity of treaties, but really left it to the courts and it really has seemed to be that you know the political policy making side of the government has abdicated some responsibility and really left it to the courts to define mm-hmm. what recognizing treaties meant and it, there's a real back and forth struggle that you see and, and is highlighted in the paper throughout history starting with the idea that consultation needs to happen putting some definitions in but it's you know it's still very much a work in progress and i think anyone looking to understand what is happening with the we see that we're seeing that play out right now with what's happening in nova scotia Uh, a treaty right being recognized for the micmac's right to fish but not really defining in clear terms what that looks like and now the it's not the cause. That's not the cause of the violence. The cause is racism. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's certainly at the core of of, of what has happened here. Um, yes, that's such a good just case study of an answer to your question about what the relationship is between Section Thirty Five and treaty rights. Because you know, there was this series of three peace and friendship treaties negotiated mm-hmm. with the Mi'kmaq came up 
in the Marshall decision in 1999 was the subject of the Marshall case in terms of um, what role um, the Mi'kmaq could play in regulating their own fisheries. And the courts actually came, the Supreme Court had um, a really positive finding that the Mm -hmm. truck house clause in the Peace and Friendship Treaty um, was one that recognized the Mi'kmaq's right to continue and perpetuate their own right to livelihood. Um, that was the agreement of coexistence between them and, and the British. And so when the Supreme Court uh, ruled on it, they did agree that the Truckhouse Clause gave the Mi'kmaq right to a moderate fishery, didn't define it. The West Nova Fishermen Association, I believe, appealed the decision and this unprecedented thing happened where the Supreme Court issued a sort of clarification of mm-hmm. the case and said, but the crown will have to moderate and regulate this fishery. Yeah. So it's like uh, with a lot of law, the large print giveth and the small print taketh away. There's a fundamental contradiction between the, um, the colonial institutions themselves determining and adjudicating the extent of authority and power that those same institutions should have. And so what you see now is the, as, you're, as you correctly point out, is racist backlash against the Mi'kmaq's assertion of livelihood in the fisheries. Um, but also what you're seeing is the problem when you leave it to the courts to determine the nature of treaty rights rather than to understand these are political agreements. And as such, they must be brokered um, with an eye towards political power sharing and not just quibbling over the interpretations of the words moderate livelihood, which no one is going to be able to agree on. No, no, absolutely. They're just two words on a page. Right. Um, I, and yeah, the, the, it really goes back to that point of this legal system that is supposedly granting this rights being the product of power subversion to the colonial state. Um, I want to talk about this legal process a little bit because Supreme Court cases are not easy. They are lengthy. They are expensive. They are complicated. And the paper makes a point that, you know, the this process of needing to adjudicate indigenous land claims through the courts has created a regulatory maze uh, really intended to divide what were unified territories into, you know, smaller um, and more divided uh, sets of interests. And so I want to stop on the policy for a second and talk about the people and just like reflect for a moment on what impact this way of doing things has on culture and, and communities. Yeah, that's such a good question. So in the courts, in the jurisprudence that defined what Section 35 constitutional rights would mean for Indigenous people, a whole series of tests have been established for Indigenous nations to prove their underlying title to the land. Of course, we have to bracket the fact that it's uncanny that Indigenous people have to claim underlying title to land when they were here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's really Canada that needs to, I think, come up with a good reason other than the doctrine of discovery for their foundational claims of sovereignty. But bracketing that for a moment, what the tests have created is a huge amount, as you say, of division and complication for communities who are trying to get land back through policies like the comprehensive and specific land claims policies. 
because they have to fulfill what's called strength of claim. And strength of claim means, you know, proving um, along the lines of these tests established by the court, Sparrow and Vanderpeet and so on, um, their longstanding occupation, their pre-colonial culture and the continuity of that culture. And um, in terms of the impacts that you're asking on families and communities, I mean, one impact that you could say is that the Canadian courts and therefore the policies that sort of follow are dependent on understanding Indigenous culture, as John Burroughs describes, as frozen rights. That the mm. way that Indigenous people can be defined in their indigeneity in Canada is only through establishing some kind of pre-colonial culture that they still maintain today. And they're not really seen as dynamic, adaptive, modern people. So there's a baked in racism against indigenous people um, that puts them in a horrible bind when they come mm -hmm. up against the state where they're either, um, you know, ha having to be these kinds of like uh, pre-historical cultures um, and only authentic in that way so that's projected onto them that they're not authentic if they're not that or they need to then if they're if they can't show that they're authentically indigenous then it's like well then what's the difference between you and canadians why can't you just be like everyone else why do you need yeah. these special rights there's really no place that they can stand and say we're modern indigenous nations we can adapt we can change we can do things now that we didn't do pre-contact and Actually, that doesn't hurt our culture. What hurts our culture is when you deny us those commercial and economic rights, because that's mm -hmm. going to help us um, build the infrastructure that we need in our communities and participate in the ceremonies that we want to participate in. And all of those things that make us Indigenous today, um, the denial of having those rights is actually what hurts communities more than, you know, some kind of some kind of like impact to their culture for be, having access to resources and and mm -hmm. the wealth of their lands yeah and the and the tie between you know the on those ongoing structures and economic vitality i think is so important for people to understand um uh, oh, uh, the the one of the little factoids in the paper that really jumped out at me and speaks, I think, to what you were saying about the court system in sort of like the the big text giveth and the small text taketh away. Strikes me is also true about mechanisms because uh, Yellow had conducted an analysis of injunctions, which, um, for those that aren't familiar, uh, are sort of pre-trial mechanisms that stop a particular actor from doing something before uh, a state and hi has highlighted that you know, the use of injunctions has been highly racist and has favored government and corporate interests, I think to the tune of 82 or 83% of the time and against indigenous communities, 82 or 83% of the time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just such a powerful um, reminder of, you know, the system being set up on such racist principles has racist implications. Yes, and obviously we can see that playing out right now at Six Nations with 1492 Lambac Lane, where yesterday they were granted a permanent, sorry, not the Six Nations, but Foxgate Development and Haldeman County were granted permanent injunction against the um, land defenders. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that trial was a masterclass in how, to come back to an earlier question, these concepts of crown land and crown sovereignty um, are 
underpinning ongoing land dispossession um, because there's really no standing for indigenous law, indigenous tenure, um, territorial authority, indigenous nationhood within these courts. I mean, in an Aboriginal rights case um, that at the Supreme Court, it's hard to find standing for indigenous law in a substantive way. But as you mentioned, in these pre-trial um, quickie uh, lower court decisions, there's even less tolerance because the question is much more nakedly about who has the greater economic harm um, yeah. in, in the circumstance, who is more inconvenienced, right? And there you see, as you mentioned, in the, the numbers since we released the reports have jumped by 14%. So now you have 91% success rate of corporations against First Nations across the country. Um, mm -hmm. who have served injunctions. And that's partially due, in large part due, to the Wet'suwet'en solidarity rallies across the country that just yeah. proliferated injunctions, but not just them. Also, um, in terms of you know communities going up against hydro development in Manitoba and so on. And so you're absolutely right. These uh, legal mechanisms um, and policy mechanisms may seem like sort of small injustices, but when you add them up all together, what you have is what really seems like um, an, uh, a, a shut and locked door for yeah. Indigenous people to access any kind of democratic channels to have their rights recognized. And that's why you do see blockades going up. Um, that's why you do see assertions of jurisdiction that don't attempt to um, go through the court system, because you look at a great decision like Tzilhotin in 2014, where they actually got land back, the first community ever to do that in an Aboriginal title case. Mm -hmm. um, that took 35 years uh, and 35 years and about, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And in the meantime, you don't have any recourse to stop that development. So you are basically, you know, being strung along in a process that you may or may not win. And in the meantime, you may lose the thing you're fighting for. Absolutely. And um, I want to uh, uh, um, build on uh, uh, that for sort of the last question uh, and the sort of last thing I want to talk about today, which is, you know, where we where we go from here. Um, uh the paper proposes the construction of indigenous-led consent models. And I want to draw a distinction here between consultation, which is um, uh, oftentimes what is done, uh, and consent, which implies uh, some uh, free prior and informed approval of you know, uh, a change of, of territory or land ownership. Um, and Yellowhead talks about... Um, consent models being built within the apparatus of the Canadian state and outside of it. Um, and so I'm curious uh, if you can talk to us a little bit about what this action looked like, uh, an instance maybe where you've seen it really works. And I think for our audience, one thing that I'm super curious about is how non-Indigenous policymakers can make space for this work. Great question. Really, really... Um really can think of many, many different examples on many different scales and many different approaches. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'll start by saying that there's um, at least three ways that we can look at consent. I know it's defined in 
sort of, I think, five ways in the report, but to make, to, to boil it down, um, we can think about consent from an Indigenous perspective and the assertions and exercises of Indigenous law. Um, we can think about consent from the perspective of having um, policy and legal frameworks that recognize Indigenous law and defer to Indigenous law in matters where consent is um, looking to be obtained. And then we can also look at international law and protections offered, for example, under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People that recognize free prior and informed consent. And then we can also see how free prior informed consent or FPIC can trickle down um, through domestic law and uphold Indigenous law as well if it's actually meaningfully taken up. So one example that I think about immediately is um, another conflict that's been unfolding presently in addition to the ones that you named in your introduction, which is the Sequetmec Tiny House Warriors who are building camps in the path of not just the Trans Mountain Pipeline that Canada owns, but also the man camps that are accompanying that construction that have been associated with really high levels of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And so what the tiny house warriors have done is they've built tiny houses in, in, this, in the pathway of this development. And that's a not just a form of blockade, um, it's a form of, um, it's a physical materialization of their lack of consent <laughs> um, to the pipeline. Uh, and so in so doing, they are not only uh, negatively asserting their jurisdiction, they're also positively saying, this is what we want on our territory. We want to house the vulnerable in our societies. We want to create solar-powered infrastructure. We want to protect and stop the violence against Indigenous women and girls in this country. We're going to appeal to the United Nations in order to support our struggle. And in fact, the committee for the elimination of racial discrimination, one of the UN committees of which Canada is a member, issued an unprecedented, very stern decision letter about the tiny house warriors and also uh, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders and Site C leaders in BC, very, very strongly condemning their military interventions into these communities, but also on the issue of consent basically said to them, if you want a grown-up to help you, we're happy to offer our consultation services so that you understand better what FPIC means, because you are a signatory to UNDRIP, to the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And so the Sequetma continue, as they have done for generations, continue to use international human rights mechanisms and also international trade mechanisms, if necessary, in order to bring Canada into compliance with recognize international human rights law um, to protect them on the ground. One thing I want to note, because I, I think, you know, uh, particularly uh, one thing that I think the liberals, uh, the liberal government likes to hold up is that, you know, they have moved us uh, closer to adopting the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, but even in the adoption, the Justice Department's principles um, maintain that uh, the concept of that there is some kind of test that must be maintained when the government may seek to infringe on a th Section 35 right. So, you know, exactly. even in the adoption of an international document that has free power informed consent, Canada as a 
nation would like to maintain its right to ignore consent when convenient uh, was one of my takeaways and something that I think is important for our audience who uh, may have involvement with the Liberal Party to understand. I didn't answer your question about what policymakers could do. So um, maybe this is an opportunity to say that internally within institutions, whatever change can be made to question the authority of the province as the case may be, or the federal ministries in which people are employed or working or elected to, it's really everyone's responsibility to push back against the idea of uh, the universal application of the common law, the unquestioned authority of the federal and provincial governments, because that authority, as we talked about, was delegated through these heads of power in the British North America Act that we're completely um, denying Indigenous jurisdiction and rights. And so that that problem continues to manifest in every single, you know, assertion of power that the state makes against Indigenous people and that it really is up to us as Canadians, since I'm not Indigenous, to be the people who push back against our own governments as well. It's just as much our responsibility to do that. Um, as a way of living in relation to the Indigenous laws of this place. And if people have financial um, means, there's uh, one of the really (laughs) negative and um, uh, debilitating aspects of being subject to governments um, who make the rules is that you are often on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages if you assert your jurisdiction. And right now, that's the case with people across the country who are dealing with lawsuits against RCMP for mm-hmm. breaking their wrists, or uh, as the case with Kennedy's Manual, or uh, Skylar Williams now being sued for $20 million in damages from Foxgate. These are very real consequences, and it's up to us to support them. Absolutely. You know, a great first step uh, for those um, who are seeking to understand these issues more, I would say would be to read the really uh, amazing work that Yellowhead Institute has put out. So uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, Dr. Pasternak, for coming on Ontario Loud. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and thank you for sharing your perspective today. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at, at Ontario Loud or go to OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto, uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Loud is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers, it was stolen, and it continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history, and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.